Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 42 with Harry Watling. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Uh, first of all, look, I want to say uh, sorry we haven't been able to record a, a show for the last couple of months, but it's uh, been an incredibly busy time of year. Summer's the busiest time of year for me. Uh, lucky to be working one-on-one with um, some of the best young players in world soccer, uh, working with players from the Premier League, La Liga, uh, Serie A, and um, the Championship as well, and obviously aspiring academy players as well, and players visiting me from all around the world. So it's been pretty hectic, so um, apologies, but we're back now, and uh, we're back with a bang uh, with a fantastic show. Uh, just before I want to say that, I want to welcome uh, all the new partner clubs we have who are taking advantage of the My Personal Football Coach Club Partnership. We've got BRYC Elite from Baltimore, FC Bangkok from Thailand, Tekkers Academy from Bahrain, uh, Elk Grove Soccer from California, Team Chicago Soccer Club as well. So lots more coming as well. We're in talks with uh, soccer clubs from all around the world. So. If you're interested in how My Personal Football Coach uh, can take your club to the next level, utilising the My Personal Football Coach app, getting all your players on, and your coaches on the coaches pass, uh, remember you can log in and check, check all the uh, data as well on the usage, and we've got some amazing updates coming for the app really in the next couple of weeks, which are really going to take it to the next level. Just, uh, just drop me a line and we can uh, set you up a demo account and uh, you can have a little play with it. Um, and uh, yeah, busy summer coming up as well still for, for September. Um, looking forward to going to Houston this weekend for the Foundation Conference, uh, presenting uh, for several hundred coaches uh, alongside my good friend uh, Kieran Smith, uh, who will be presenting as well. So looking forward to that. And then uh, going visiting, uh, doing a couple of inside the academy shoots as well for the uh, some some documentaries, and we've also got some new content coming out in the inside the academy as well. Another interview. So if you haven't seen it yet, check out the Albert Capellas interview on the inside the academy. The uh, former Barcelona head of youth, and we've got one more coming out in the next next couple of weeks. So lots of new content coming, and also a trip to Asia coming as well at the end of the month, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but now onto the show. Like I said, we're back with a bang. Uh, this is a really good one. Uh, this is Harry Watling, who's a Premier League Academy coach. Uh, he coaches at West Ham's Academy. He's also coached at Chelsea, also at Millwall. Uh, someone who's, who's one of the best young uh, coaches around in academy football. He went into the game early and he's already worked at some of the top clubs in, in, in Premier League academy football and uh, he, he really is one to watch. This, this young man has got so much potential in terms of coaching. He's going to go all the way to the top. By that I mean I anticipate him working in first team football at the very highest level in the not too distant future. Uh, speaks really well, really eloquent, really intelligent guy, real good knowledge and love of the game. Uh, lots of great um, knowledge and value to share with you all. Uh, always, I've known Harry since we worked at Chelsea together and, and there's always uh, lots of innovation when it comes to session design and uh, he's fortunate to have worked obviously with with uh, six, seven, eight, nines, tens, all the way up to, to 23. So he's, he's seen the whole journey. So this, like I said, this is one which is uh, you don't want to miss. 
and uh, like I said keep it tuned I, I'm back now I'm going to be produ- uh, recording some, uh, several more podcasts in the next few weeks and getting all that content out for you as soon as possible but and remember if you're enjoying the show please do leave a review we really do appreciate it and it really does help without further ado let's get into the show so Harry Watlin wait, welcome to the show thanks for having me Saul so can you just give us a little brief um, description of your playing and coaching journey up to this point yeah um I suppose in terms of the playing side, I was I was a hard worker, but I was quite realistic. So I think probably the most I got paid for playing a game was £45. So I quickly realised that that wasn't going to pay my mortgage when I got one, if that makes sense. Um, so got into coaching relatively young. Um, started off working in grassroots football. First pro club was Chelsea, lucky enough to work there. Then moved on to Millwall and now I'm working at West Ham. So that's... You know that's the that's the timeline, and I'm sure you want to go into a bit more detail about all of those in a minute. You know what? I always ask that the first question, and I was hoping it's going to be nice and brief. That's probably the briefest one ever, mate. I love that. Uh, <laughs> done me a favour, right? So let's dive in there. So let's talk about that your your first your first opportunity at Chelsea. I mean, such a fantastic club. How did that come about? It's amazing, really. So um, I've got I've got the opportunity to go into one of their so underneath their academy side. You had the eights elite group, which you know because you were there as well. And then you had the development centres where they would highlight the best players locally in London and get them in once or twice a week. And I was offered the opportunity just to go there and work once a week on a Monday night at the Kidbrook Centre, which has had loads of players, Loftus Cheek, Tammy Abrams, have all all been to that centre. So I was offered the opportunity to go there, um, working with some really good coaches and just working with some really good players. And then I went to um, one of the Talent ID events where you took your best players from that centre up to Cobham and Neil Bath just was walked past while I was delivering a session and it wasn't down to my knowledge of the game or my identity as a, as a coach. I just think he liked my personality and my energy. So from there, I was then asked to come in and work with the H group um, where all of the best under eights come together for a year and they train three times a week. And then coupled with that on the second season, they asked me to come in and float in the foundation phase. So I would do a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Saturday afternoon in between the nines, tens and elevens. And I think that was that was probably my most enjoyable role I had at Chelsea because I would be working, as an example, I'd be working with someone like Callum hudson Adoy in the under-11s and seeing what he had in terms of his ingredients as a player. And then I would go back down with the eights or the nines and I would be able to kind of uh, relay back to them, you know, what they might need to practice and what they might need to brush up on and things like that. I would say the interesting thing also is Chelsea, the biggest education Chelsea gave me was from the players. The players really educated me on on what it really took to be a top individual. So tell us about Callum. What was Callum like as an 11-year-old, for people who don't know? Outrageous. Um, just used to pick the ball up, no fear. Unbelievable distance control between him and the defender. Had a really good knack of shifting it as someone jumped in. And would would just pick it up and at times run through the entire team. And what was quite interesting for me, as I said, I didn't really have an identity as a coach because when I was working in grassroots football I had a a group of players um, that were I suppose without being unfair to them 
they were quite safe players, would play off of one and two touch. And on the eye to, to an inexperienced coach, it looked really good. But I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't educated in, in the art of dribbling at the time. So when I first see the coach's reaction to when someone like Callum would pick the ball up and drive at people, I was quite intrigued because he would risk the ball all the time, which, like I go back to, at the time for me, I was thinking, is that the right thing? Is that the wrong thing? But then as you start to, to become more experienced in developing individuals, you realise they need the ball in order to develop. They need the ball a lot of the time in order to develop and they need to be able to make decisions. Um, but he was outstanding. He was outstanding. You know, it's funny, I'm going to digress for a minute, well, not really, but talk about Callum Hudson-Odoi because I was, I've been working with a young pro from Palace this summer and I asked him who's the best player he's ever played against and he said Callum Hudson-Odoi and I said, why is that? And he said, you know what? It was just, just his mindset. And he goes, you played against him in the first half and Callum gave the ball away twice and then Palace scored. But he said in the second half, he still kept going. He kept, kept dribbling and he ended up scoring a hat-trick or saying winning the game. He said he would never, he couldn't under, he'd never sort of seen that mentality where he could brush off those mistakes and just you know, and then almost like duck off uh, water off a duck's back and then keep on going where he said I might make a mistake and I might sort of like you know get on myself the reason I'm saying that is obviously you know he's been in that environment where coaches encourage that um, courageousness on the ball they encourage those mistakes at a young age and maybe aren't that worried about you know results or giving the ball away at a young age or even when he was older yeah I think if you want to produce brave players you have to have brave coaches so you have to have coaches that will encourage players to take the ball under extreme pressure. You have to have coaches that encourage players to try and go and deliver a trick in a real tight area to, to unlock a, a team that might be playing in a shape that's, that's, that's problematic for you to break down. Uh, having players that can do that, in my opinion, be any tactic in the world. So if you're playing up against a group who are really causing you problems and are hard to break down, one individual at any split second that can break that and go past something automatically breaks down their organisation. So going back to your original point, I think that the staff at the time, and like I say, I was floating, so I'm, I'm not claiming at all to have had any influence on Callum. I would say he had an influence on me more than anything. But the staff should, the staff deserve extreme credit for their attitude towards his development and, and being positive towards him collecting the ball, making a mistake, try again, try again. Um, and I think that that's been a, a, a recipe for a lot of their players to do for you. So think about, I mean, obviously coming from the grassroots as you did quite recently, I mean, do you reflect on your time there and thinking, you know, how would maybe, because obviously a lot of grassroots coaches listen to to the show, I mean, how would you initially have felt about someone like Callum being in your session maybe and holding the ball too much? And, you know, what would your advice be to grassroots coaches obviously who aren't in academy football where you know the pressures are a bit different where maybe winning you know parents want to win or you know maybe you know getting players in who is, may pay for play models a bit more 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 of an issue what would your advice be to your grassroots coaches in that same situation yeah it's it's, it's, it's such a difficult question Saul because I think ultimately the whole reason why we're all here regardless of what tier you're working at is to is to produce a player and I think the minute that you understand that, the minute your mindset changes from from team to individual. So if you've got, I mean, if you've got someone as outrageous as him, for example, within your group, then first of all, you're very lucky. Second of all, you've got massive responsibility to help him. I think going back 10, 15, 20 years, when I was growing up, probably the best player I played against in the system was probably Victor Moses. 
but people at the time would call him ball greedy. Now, if he was in the system now, you would never say anything like that. So I do think that we've developed a better understanding of the individual and of the dribbler because they're match winners. So my advice, to, my advice to anyone would just be understand what the process looks like, and them needing the ball more often than not to develop is a, is a massive. It's a massive part of them getting better. And so tell us a bit more then about those those first mo- m- months at Chelsea. I mean, what were your first impressions about the club there and the whole setup? Yeah, I think I think first of all, it's a massive, massive club. So I've gone from sevens, eights nines floating and then I was I was given the, the permanent role of being the nines coach um, first of all it's a massive club it's a massive structure you go in and the building is like wow um, first team are only next door and they were brilliant with us coming over especially sort of Christmas times I'm sure they did it when you were there as well Christmas times come and meet the players yeah. initially I was I was I was really uh, pleasantly surprised about the overall level of player. I think some clubs, without being disrespectful, you may have an A-grade player, a B-grade player and a C-grade player. A lot of the players at Chelsea are A-grade players in terms of their, they're all top, top, top. Whether they're going to be top in years to come is down to probably the system and, and how they're nurtured. But in terms of the now, where they were at the time, they were all really good players. You know, I know one of my first impressions working in that environment was how you were working, say, for instance, in the eights and the development centres and the academy is that it's quite a, quite a small team in terms of like, you know, the, the nines coach, the tens coach, levens coach would all be working as well often in those development centres. So it's a great place to learn and see other players, people, coaches working and, you know, almost side by side and, you know, within the team in the academy and the eights. What was your thoughts on that? Yeah, one of I mean... Me and you shared exactly the same role, didn't we? So it was. It, it, it's a good point. What you, what you had, you had a really good understanding of what was coming through. You had a really good understanding of what you've got now and what you maybe had the year before. Um, and you had an understanding of the entire phase, which was important, and you all mucked in together. The other thing which was really good, which, which stands me in good stead, was the summer camps. And what they did for three of the five years that I was at Chelsea is they moved the coaches around and they... So I found myself one year assisting one of the coaches that was working with Declan Rice's group. So for me, again, I think they was under 13s at the time. For me, again, it was it was a it was a brilliant place to be. So I'm walking past pitches once I finish training. I'm watching the youth team play and Loftus Cheek is running the show, and I'm watching Tammy Abrams working on extra finishing. And I'm looking at all these players and. Like I say, I'm not claiming to have had any effect on their career at all, but they definitely, definitely affected my career in a positive way. Okay, tell us a bit about then about the recruitment policy at CSC. What sort of players are they looking for at under eight? Um, it's a good one. So one of one of the roles I had, I, I ended up uh, being in charge of the development centre that I that I I was hired to work in initially. So. I, I, I had an amazing team of scouts. So Alf Blanford, who's brought in millions of players, Stevie Owen, Colin Mitchell, Peter Townsend as well at times. So those guys would bring in the best that they could possibly find. We would utilise things like in-house festivals. Um, but the players that they would get, again, outstanding 1v1, could take, could, could take the ball or show bravery to take the ball, not always technically needing to be 
super clean, but just that intent to want to take the ball and drive past players. So if someone could eliminate someone 1v1, straight away that was a box ticked. You'd look at physically how they move, because obviously if they can move better, then they can manipulate the ball a little bit better. Um, so those were some of the boxes that, that, that we would try and pick when we were looking at players to bring in in terms of recruitment. And then talk a little more then, so you go into the academy as you're as a nine coach. Tell us a bit about the setup in terms of, you know, what was the expected playing style and how much freedom did you have to construct your sessions? You know, what was the methodology, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I worked with Bob Osborne, who's been there for he was there for years and years and years and Ozzy gave me complete license to lead all of the sessions because he, he was quite fond of what I did which I was I was lucky in that aspect in terms of the playing style it was just go and win the ball back and go and attack the opposition as quickly as you possibly can be exciting to what move the ball quickly in certain areas and then when you can play 1v1 think 2v1 and go and attack the goal it wasn't loads of restrictions on us it was it, it, I think the demand was have the best player on the pitch and try and be the best group. And I, that was that was mainly it. And, and, and what what were the were there any sort of pressures involved with that role in terms of day to day and the games? I mean, what what was it like? You know, obviously it's an amazing experience. What were what are the pressures on a, on a young coach like yourself in the first role like that? Um, I, I think you know what, so you probably put a little bit of pressure on yourself because you do have very very good players. So you do expect those players to, to perform. So you put pressure on yourself to try and give them enough freedom to go out and perform. But also you have to strip it back a little bit and understand you're the under nines coach. You've had these players from probably the age of six and now they're with you permanently. So it's it's the, the development side hasn't even really begun yet. So you're still thinking about, I'm going to leave him isolated on his own so he's exposed to 2v1 scenarios or... I'm going to ask him to dribble in his own half only because he needs to be exposed to travelling with the ball more because he plays too many quick passes. Just You're always thinking about things like that. So the, the pressure probably comes from within yourself than, than it did above with management. They were quite good luck. And tell us a little bit about, them, about coach development. How did that work at the club? How did they develop their coaches? Uh, well, Mickey Bill was brilliant. He used to run all of the CPD events for 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 the staff that worked because he was in charge of his full teams group, but also all of the development centre coaches. Um, and he had a big influence on me going in there as the nines coach as well. So the CPDs for, from him were, were really good, and they were just always he was always banging the drum of just make sure that our players are competent one v one. So all of our practices were were based around the individual. And I would say again, so I have to be honest, the best CPD for me at Chelsea was working with the players. They made me a, they made me a much more competent coach. And so how did you, like, for instance, how, you know, how did you come up with sessions? Where did you get your ideas for sessions and that sort of thing? Um, it's always been the same. It hasn't really changed. So who are my best players? What do they need? Um, I'm, working with, I'm working with someone that I think is... Is a goal scorer? Is he getting the correct amount of finishes in a practice? If I'm working with someone that's a little bit more of a destroyer, are we exposing him enough to emergency defending in a practice? Are, are we catering for what they need? And then I would design it around that. Um, always attacking and defending a goal, really, really important. In terms of areas and timings, you're probably looking at that as they go a little bit older. Um, you, you, you're probably judging that just off of the eye with the younger ones and managing your sets with your coaching points. But my main 
my main base of designing the session was always around the best players and, and catering for what they need. So give us like a rough idea then what your, your typical under nine session would look like at Chelsea when you're doing it. Yeah, so straight away give them a ball. So everybody has their own ball and we would go through some skill sets or some core skills, but some, some basic bits, you've done it yourself, some ball manipulation bits and then fall nicely into some opposed stuff working on 1v1s or overloaded stuff where they've got a decision. The decision might be to use a teammate or to use an extra goal. But sometimes you play one goal games, two goal games, three goal games, overloaded games. Move that into a game scenario where you, 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 the possession side of it, being patient, keeping the ball, comes into it a little bit more. Again, always attacking and defending goals and then always trying to, to, to refer it back to the game and then finishing off with a, with a game scenario. Interesting. And so, so about then your, your game day, how you, you'd approach that of under nines? In terms of like you know, for instance, what formation would you play? You know, what what sort of things in terms of getting players in different positions? What are the protocols with that? Yeah, so we always try to share the minutes. Really important to share the minutes. Um, in terms of the shapes, the shapes we probably played three shapes a year, maybe four. They was they was in blocks. Um, and in terms of positions, we would try not to move the players around in terms of their positions per game if we could help it because it was important for them to get used to that, but a maximum of two positions per game, because as you know, you play four periods. Um, and and that, that was it, to be honest with you. It was, it was always with the, the thought process in the back of your mind to try and stretch your best players again. So, uh, as you can imagine, the amount of top, top dribblers you would have at Chelsea was outrageous. So, I would always like to play them at the back of my system, so they had more players to beat. So, you're developing their key strength through the formation and the system you're playing. Um, in terms of, again, in terms of some defenders, if you're playing them at the top of the pitch, they're leading the charge and going to win the ball back. So again, it's fast, slow, low, and then tackle. But always with the, the, the concept in the back of your mind of, okay, this 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 team, how we're setting it up, is, is always going to be to stretch the individuals. So how much how much tactical work would you do with with a nines group in terms of like you know shape formation counter attacking or you know those sorts of or, you know or how how deep and intricate would you go tactically with a group of yeah, nines? Not not loads. So it was more about it was, it was more about go and get the ball back, but be really good at retrieving the ball one v one, and be excellent at taking players on and excellent at making decisions. So within within your practices, you just have to be creative. So Aussie used to do this one which was really clever, he would play with two colour balls. So if we was working on counter-attacking, we would play with the white ball. The minute he blew the whistle and dropped the green ball in the middle of the pitch, the opposition would counter quickly and go towards the other goal. So if we're conscious of the tactical side of it, that's fine. But we was always, always adamant that we would never bog the players down with too much teamy conversation or tactical conversation. It was just really around who's the best player, where are we putting him? Why are we putting him there? Where are we stretching him? And then, obviously, know that winning mentality is a really important part of the methodology there at Chelsea. But what does that look like as an, an under nine, under nine's team? Good question. You want to listen. You want to win every game, whether it's a, whether it's a race to the lamppost and back, or whether it's a game of football. Um, I think it's really important to to make sure that the players are competitive and they want to win. But if they don't win, how they handle it and how they learn from it and how they reflect and review it. So 
again, the pressures of playing for Chelsea. I've never played for Chelsea, but I've worked for Chelsea. The pressures of playing must be quite big. The, play, the pressures of working for them was, was quite big. So you want to win every game. Um, I suppose you, you, you probably remember the most competitive games were always against Arsenal. I, I remember when I first joined the club, Arsenal were probably still the, the, the main club in London that everyone was trying to catch. And through that period of time when we was there, we, we probably, fair to say, overtook Arsenal. Um, but those games had a real edge to them. They were, they were very exciting. Tell us a little bit about those, because I remember those games. I mean, when I started my career at Tottenham playing Arsenal, and then the Chelsea-Arsenal became, that was a big game. I mean, people might understand that, but I mean, tell, to transcribe what that was like in terms of atmosphere, the parents, what, how, what, how do you deal with the players on a, on a big occasion like that? It was really interesting because, like, like we touched on earlier, you're involved with these players from six till nine. So we've gone through the the, the development centre route where my my attitude towards it, because Arsenal used to run a centre around the corner, and they were really competitive, had some excellent scouts. But my attitude was, go and have a look at them. I believe we're the best. I think that we're the right people for you. I think I'm the right coach for you at the moment. But go and have a look and then what will things will be. But you go through the signing on the evening where... Oh, is he gonna is he gonna turn up or is he gonna go there? And then all of a sudden you fast forward and you're at a you're at an under nines game where you've coached the boy on the opposition team for two or three years and you know how much of a good player he is and he's chosen to go to Arsenal and, and fair play to him. But then you've now looking at you're now looking at your group. So again game, make sure that the best players are Situated in parts of the pitch, help them. Um, but no, they, they were lively, as you as you can probably vouch for yourself. They they were lively. It's probably the one game of the season that you really really wanted to win. To be okay, cool. So then you come on to your next uh, your next challenge at Millwall. Tell us a little bit how that came about. Well, it's interesting. So I've done five and a half years at Chelsea. It was, it was definitely in in my mind that I I wanted to work in eleven aside football. And I had a really nice, I, had, I think I had a three-month gap and I spoke to a lot of clubs. Um, I spoke to quite a few clubs, spoke to Arsenal, Tottenham, but I spoke to Millwall and Anthony Gale was really big on me, in me going to Millwall. Um, just, he sold the club to me in, in, in a way and when I got there, it, it delivered everything he said. I, just, just to briefly scale over it, I went in, as 12s and 13s working across both age groups. I then moved up with a 15 and went 15, 16s. And my last season there, I did 15, 16s and then the pre-season with the first team. And everything, to be fair to Gailey, everything that he said was on the tin, was on the tin. Um, it, being, it was my, my boyhood club growing up. So I understood, I understood what, what it meant to be a Millwall player and a Millwall supporter. So I think me working for Millwall was something I really wanted to tick off, off of my, uh, my, my bucket list, if you like. Um, and the, the dad, my, my dad was very pleased, put it that way. <laughs> and what, so tell us about the initial then, what are the main contrasts between working at, at Millwall and working at Chelsea? Um, you're going to laugh at this, but first thing was the smell. So it smelled of hard work, stunk wow. of work. The players are the most honest and humble players I've ever worked with. They come up to you at the end of the session, shake your hand, look you dead in the eye, and they're so grateful that you're there talking to them and trying to help them. 
um, and it was it was it was a real um, it was a real plus when you look at the energy that they brought to the table. Some of them were top players. We spoke earlier about A grade players. There are A grade players at Millwall, but then some of them would, would make up for that just with energy and enthusiasm and grit and determination. So, as a coach, when you're getting that from a group of players. Again, it adds to your repertoire on what you can deliver and the tempo you can deliver at. So it was, it was brilliant. So tell us a little bit about then, because you've gone into 11-a-side football. I mean, you made a transition from 7 side football to 11 side football. Tell us a little bit about that in terms of what were the main challenges with that, moving into that in terms of session design and controlling your players and match day and those sorts of things. Yeah, so like I say, under 12, that's your introduction as a player. So I would say that me and the players learnt together. Um, so that that was really good. Players were open-minded. I think, if I'm being honest and completely reflective, probably the first two seasons I went too tactical. I was overthinking things again, and then I I referred back to my experience at Chelsea of just thinking to myself, let's let let at certain points let's let the players do the talking because I was probably guilty of helping them too much in how we set up. So I'll give you an example. We may have gone 2-1 down. We're playing 4-4-2. Uh, the opposition have got an extra player in midfield. And I think that I can solve the problem tactically and help the team get back into the game by maybe dropping one back in. Now, that may be a positive short-term, but long-term, am I really stretching the players? So in the third and fourth season at Millwall, I started to be probably a little bit braver as a coach and in turn produce braver players. I think the last season that I was there, I think my 15 group, I think we had six England internationals, which was unheard of at Millwall. And two of those have gone on to play for Man City. They've been purchased by Man City. So we had a, we had a real good group of players, Saul, that were, like I say, really honest and hard work. And, I mean, tell us a little bit of that then, but, I mean, you know, practically, you know, the environment, what the difference between, you know, Chelsea and Millwall, you know, facilities, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you've got one AstroTurf. So at Chelsea, you've got 33 football pitches. Millwall, you've got one AstroTurf. So you have to be creative about how you do things. So if you're doing a session on playing out from the back and playing into the midfield third, you've got no chance because you've got a quarter of an AstroTurf. So you've got to be really creative about how you break up your pitch, what you want it to look like. Some sessions, you have to do things lopsided. Um, so you it actually forced me to be really creative in terms of my practice. Um, I, used to, I used to spend hours talking to... So Steve Salis was the head of education at Millwall. Another one who really influenced me in terms of how I speak uh, to players and what language I use and pick words that work. But we used to speak all the time about how I can be creative with practice designs, how I can select someone in that practice design. But in terms of the... The differences between the two, so they were astronomical. They were massive. And so, tell us about then your, I mean, your session design. I mean, was it vastly different to what you did as an under nines coach? What you're you're delivering as an under twelves and under fifteens? Yeah, good question. Yes, it was different. Um, I think you're looking at more position specific. So, I'll, I've I've got this golden rule in my head that every player I work with, I want them to have a real good understanding of what they are as a player by the time I've finished coaching them. So as an under nine, it's really difficult to have a clear identity because 
you're probably quite good at everything. And there's there's probably two or three things you're really good at. When you're working with an under 15 and under 16 who's pushing for the youth team and a 23, they've got to have a real clear identity of their key strengths. So again, it, it would be about isolating an, an individual technically and tactically and saying, okay, we need to make him outstanding at this if he's going to play at that next level, if he's going to get into the first team, or if he's going to go beyond our first team to another first team. So in terms of how I would set practices out, the fundamentals of stretching the individual were exactly the same, but I would say that there was more detail attached to the technical and tactical side. And what we would do at Millwall is we would really stretch the players psychologically, put it, putting them under extreme pressure because... It was how we would play. We would play at a, a real high tempo. Uh, the academy manager wanted us to play predominantly 4-4-2, which I found challenging at first because I probably didn't understand it well enough. But once I got to grips with that and what was expected of each position profile, I I got I come to grips with it and it and it, it worked quite well. So then, I mean, Tess, what else, how else would you put the players under pressure? It's interesting that thing talking about the psychological aspects. What else would you do to put the players under pressure? Um, so we would we would have I would have a I would have a practice. Um, this is an example of how I would probably stress someone technically and psychologically to stay on the ball. Practice that I would call the cage. Four mini goals in either corner. Four players from each team around the outside. One v one in the middle. Five balls. Every ball that comes in thrown up in the air, has to bounce three times before you touch it. So it's working on your, your your core strength, shielding the ball, fighting for the ball, winning the ball. You had to play a bounce pass of someone on the outside before you score. It's a lung burner. It's psychologically demanding. Technically, you've got to be top to win the game. And we would do things like that. Another thing, I inherited a player who he could not travel with the ball, but physically he was really, really good. So could run but just couldn't travel with it. So, again, to stretch him, spoke to the whole group, the whole group this particular player, um, he's not allowed He's not allowed to pass the ball in the opposition half. So if he picks it up, he must drive. For him, the first three games were an absolute nightmare. And he came to me and said, I don't think I can do this. By game five and game six, when everyone else has stopped getting the ump with him and started gambling on, oh, if he loses it, I'm going to counter-press, or encouraging him to drive and him scoring two or three goals from it. he come out the other side being a competent traveller with the ball to couple that with how he would use his, his pass selection, which he was already elite at anyway. So again, you're, you're, you're stretching each player differently, but what I would say about the boys at Millwall in their... Um, that, Psychologically, they were bulletproof. They would do anything. And I mean, you, made, you mentioned an interesting point in there previously when you talked about you're playing four four two. Maybe you didn't quite understand it, and then you went out to learn more. Tell us a bit about that process, because obviously, as we know, academy environment can be quite a pressure filled environment. You know, very, yeah. you know, uh, very macho, if you like. You know, how do you how do you recognise how do you go and identify you need to work in an area? Maybe do you go and ask someone, or do you just go and source it something else? How do you how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah, so I would watch the first team anyway as a fan. Um, so I'll, I'll watch that. I'd speak to first team, first team coach Dave Livermore was always on the phone with me in terms of a text to give me any advice. Uh, and he invited me in for a pre-season, which was brilliant. I would go and watch teams that played two centre midfielders, 
at the time Leicester won the Premier League playing two centre midfielders. So I think initially I would I would I would hold my hands up and say this honestly. Initially I'd probably turn my nose up at playing like that first of all, and I would probably try and either tuck a wide player in to help help them or drop a centre forward down a line uh, and try and be creative with the shape. But I just tried to upskill myself so and, and understand that. If I was producing a midfield player that could play in a two, he can most definitely play in a three long term. Whereas the other way round, maybe they can't play in a two, if that makes sense. So I see it as a, as a massive positive that if I've got, if I'm going to have an impact on a player's career in any way and he gets to first team level and he's asked to play in a two, it's not going to be a problem to him. He's going to be able to do it. Um, and likewise with the three. So how important do you think it is then for when you're, you're working with young players to, to play different formations and, and try things that, like that out? I think it's massive. I think it's massive. I think there's different types of full-backs, different types of centre-half, different types of wide players, different types of midfielders, different types of forwards. Um, and not everybody is going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I think that we've got to really try and open, open these, these players up to things that they can do rather than We've just got a terrible attitude in England of just pointing out what kids can't do. It drives me mad. Um, Harry Maguire's just gone to Man United for 80 million. Someone said to me last week he can't run. And I'm thinking, he can't run. Plays for England, playing for Man United. He must be out, he must be out to do something, right? So I think we have, to, we, have to open, we have to open and expose these kids to as much as we possibly can just so they've got enough tools in the tool belt that that day when they're asked to do something, they can do it. So a good example is, for me, Trent Alexander-Arnold, I have this debate at work all the time. For me, he can play centre midfield, so no problem. Yeah. No problem at all to play centre midfield. He plays fullback at the moment, but what a lovely luxury to have. If Klopp has, a, if Klopp has an injury epidemic and all of a sudden he has to throw Trent in there, he, he can do it no problem. And that's credit to the people at Liverpool that have exposed him to things and made him technically elite. And then, so let's talk a bit about then when you start working with the 15s and 16s. I mean, what was the major differences in terms of, for instance, your interpersonal communication, your motivation between, you know, looking, reflecting back with your time as the under nines, now you're working with these young men? loads and loads of one-to-one stuff with them in between water breaks and I just tried to build relationships with players I would, I would, I was doing extras with players I was doing all sorts just to try and help them luckily um, one of my one of my good friends he was 16's coach at Liverpool when I was when I was sort of in and around that age group as well and then he moved up to 23 but I went up there a few times to watch him work and again that opened me up to another level so it was just it, it was just about again developing because the boys at that age have got a personality and they know what they want and they're hungry so it's about helping them understand what they were good at what their identity was what they were what football meant to them do they love it and then where do you want to be who's in front of you who's behind you who do you need to be conscious of what do you need to do to get in front of him what does he do better than you who's in the first team in your position all, all things around that. We would we would do the extras. We would do were on a different level. So we would rent minibuses out at Millwall and take the players to the first team games and give them packs on player positions that played in their position and just ask them to fill things out. What's he good at? 
Why is he good at that? Why is he in the team? What does he do better than you? What do you do better than him? What you and you do that probably once, twice, three times a month if the players are available to do it. Sometimes I'd go to games on a one-to-one basis, player and parent, and just say, right, let's sit and watch him. Tell me what you think he's good at. Um, so the stuff that you would do on a one-to-one basis for me, just it went under the magnifying glass even more. And tell us about the, how that worked in terms of, again, your freedom to coach there. Was there a curriculum in place? What did you... How did you approach your, your coaching? Was it reactionary or was it, you know, your planning, that sort of thing? No, it was, in, it was interesting. I, I would say, if I'm being honest, it probably went through a little bit of a transitional phase at Millwall. Because when, when we first went there, uh, when I first went there and I was doing the in the 13, it was quite loose, which was good for me. Um, first season as a 15 coach, sometimes I'd come off the pitch and there would be comments from people saying, you don't play forward quick enough. We're not direct enough. We need to run behind more. Um, and then after that, we had a, a little bit of change in personnel and in terms of the staffing structure. And we started to play, we started to, to to be asked to play more, which for me was brilliant. Um, and it and it was refreshing. But I, I worked with some. Re- we had some good staff at Mill. So Gailey was excellent. Uh, I worked with Andy Massey, who I think was the I think he still is youngest. Young, one of the youngest and the closest local boys to ever play for the first team come through the academy and Steve Salis. So you've got people like that with you who were, who were massive. They were massive. Um, so that, the, the challenges were interesting. But again, challenges are there to be, to be taken on head on. So that was good for me. But, and tell us about your planning. What was the process like when you're planning your sessions? How far ahead did you plan? Um... And then what did that look like in terms of how much did, was it a reaction to the game on the weekends? Yeah, I would probably always have to react to the youth team because working across the 15s and 16s, the 15s game programme was quite slim. You would just have the floodlit cut. So you would do more game prep sessions, which were very tactical. Um, so you're talking maybe two games a month with the 15s. But all of our 15s would constantly play in our 16s. So we were producing players that were always ready for that next step up. Um, Floodlit Cup was amazing. So, um, like, some really good nights. One one year, I think we got to the semis, which was brilliant for the players just to go on a run, just to understand what it's like to gather momentum. Another year, we had a, a really tough group. I think you texted me the next day, funnily enough. We went to Chelsea and did really well. Um and, and, and that was brilliant. That was a really nice moment. But you're always reacting off of, off of what what happens above you because the first team will take from the 23s, 23s will take from 18s, and 18s will take from us. Interesting. And then tell us a bit about then, like, dealing with the pressure. Well, dealing with players, obviously, you know, contracts are, you know, a regular thing anyway. But, I mean, as they get that close to the line, and obviously then you know, how do you deal with having to release players that maybe been in the academy since they were eight or nine what was your approach to that? Yes, it, it, it's, it's tough. It's, the conversations when when people are getting scholars are always easy. Um, one when they're when they're not, they're not they're not very nice to have. I think you do get a really good idea at 15s what your top ones are going to look like, and that's me being honest. But there's always one that comes back that surprises everybody. Or always, I did that age group for three years, and I'm doing that age group again now. And there's always someone that comes back in pre-season that was completely out of it 
and they they come back and they're right in amongst it again. So I think it probably just goes to show that you can't can't really write people off. All 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 I tried to do, so when I was getting them from the the 14s coach, was look at what they were really good at and what was going to get them a scholar, not that wasn't going to get them a scholar, if that makes sense. So if if I had a midfielder that was maybe fantastic, I wasn't to say to him, you've got to go and beat five players in order to get a scholar. It was more, okay, how can we enhance what we already have? So that was probably the main thing I focused on. And how much like responsibility would you put on the player to say, you know, for instance, you need to improve this, go away and do it, or... Will the expectation, take, expectation be right? We're going to work on this within the sessions. I mean, I mean, what's the process like if a player has a maybe is, has an area where which you might not get a scholar? Do you say, look, this is an area you need to really work on an address, and this is the opportunity to do it, or the expectation they're going to go away and work on that? Six weekly reviews. Sit, sit, sat down with the player formally, recorded, popped on the pier so they can watch it back. Easier clip. This is what we think you're really, really good at. You need to keep doing this. This is what you need to improve on. These are the staff you might want to tap into. So if you're talking to a centre-half or the academy manager was a centre-half, so a couple of conversations with him w- would help you. Or if, you, if he's a midfielder, I was a midfielder, and Massey was a midfielder. So what things can we help you with? So it was about constantly reflecting, not, not, not ever standing still, making sure that we were trying to progress everything. Because the worst thing for me was me inheriting a player and saying, oh, he needs to work on this. And then by the time he doesn't get a scholar, me still saying the same thing. The player's not fouled. I've fouled the player. So if that happens, then we haven't done something. We've missed something. We haven't done something correctly. So that was the process with regards to that. And I just want to go back to the Floodlit Cup because I was going to talk about that. I remember texting you. So, I mean... Obviously, I remember you going that night, you had a great result against Chelsea. I mean, but tell us a little bit about what that was like then, not just that game, being in that environment where, you know, maybe in academy football, probably you're not, you're not that used to it, apart from playing in the tournaments abroad, maybe. What was that like being in that like pressure cooker, that sort of stress and, you know, being, was that, did you feel the, did you feel the, uh, that competitive cauldron yourself as a coach? How did you deal with that, that extra stress and that pressure and how did you deal with the players? Most, most definitely. Like I said, if me and you are racing to the shop, I desperately want to beat. So that that's that's never changed within me. Um, I think the floodlit cup because it's a competition and there's points on the line. It changes the mindset slightly. The message from the senior staff to me was always right. Let's pick the team that you think is going to win you the game. Make sure you get everybody on the pitch. Um, don't substitute your fundamental beliefs for anything. Make sure you stick to that. I think that year we had an unbelievably tough group. We had three Cat 1s in our group. Um, and the first game was, like you say, at Cobham against Chelsea with the group that I had as my under-9s originally. So I knew all of the players and I knew I knew how tough it was going to be. Um, and they actually went on to win the south side of the tournament and, and the whole thing. So credit to them um, and their coach because that was a fantastic group. Uh, but you won on the night, right? <laughs> we did, yes, we did. Um, okay, and just, and just okay. So then, moving on, you're, you're, you're coming to your next, your next challenge. Tell us a little bit about that, how that came about. Yeah, I, I've just, I got to the, I got to the stage where again, I'm one thing with me, I'm always realistic. So if we rewind back to when I said to you about when I was playing football, I was realistic with myself, and I knew I was only, I was only going to get a certain, a certain way playing. 
when I've been at clubs, I've always been quite realistic if I think I should stick around or if I think I should speak to other people. And before I joined West Ham, I was having a conversation with another club, which out of respect, I won't say I won't say who it was, but I actually went and sat down with Terry Wesley and Liam Manning um, and just presented to them my beliefs and what I think it looks like. And by it, I mean player development. I actually listened to Terry speaking on my advanced youth a year before, and I was I was sold then. But I think the big thing that that, that got me across the line at West Ham wasn't the role, because I'll explain to you what the role was. But it was Liam. Liam was a massive part of that. The the things that they do in terms of their player, the things they do for their players, is, is massive. And the, the whole philosophy of the club and the players is massive. Last, last year was my first year there and it was a, a really successful and enjoyable year and I'd, I'd have to say this pre-season um, in, my, in my new role is, is probably the best pre-season in terms of enjoyment and in terms of the, the, the playing personnel and I genuinely mean that and we've touched on the players that I've, I've had the you know had the pleasure of working with but the playing personnel that I've got are up there and so then Think about for the future. Then, what are your, your hopes for the future? What are your ambitions? I've always always said I want to manage a team in the youth cup. That was something I set out to do the minute I started coaching. So that's still something that I, I would like to do. Um, what's what's starting to happen now, which is really nice, is I've, I'm starting to see players that I've coached from really young make debuts in youth teams, in 23s, in first team football in the Premier League for England um, I'm seeing players go from Millwalls to Man City's. so probably the last three years it's been really nice to sit sit at, it makes me sound old but sit at home in the armchair at the telly I, I, I picked his cones up for him once in a session or I, I coached him for a season or I helped him with this or I, I did that so for me it's just to continue across the path where I'm going um, surrounding myself with good people and one day I would love to work in a first team environment. I would love to, but I think I've got a hell of a long way to go yet. So it's just about me working with good people. So at the moment, me and Paul are taking the 15s at West Ham, and then we've got Colton Cole with us as well. Um, so it's, it's a good group of people. So I'm I'm enjoying where I am at the moment, um, and we'll see what happens. And and I mean you mentioned a few people earlier, but. You know how you know any important people in your in coaches and your journey mentors that are really important that you'd like to mention. Yeah, I, I think Mickey Bill's been sort of ma- massive for me. I mean, he was the best man at my wedding, but he's been he's been huge for me in terms of he was the guy that said to me as a fifteen year old, "I think you could be quite good at this." So I so I've got a lot I've got a lot to thank him for. Um, he's been a real big influence wherever he's gone, whether it be Liverpool, Brazil, or now at Rangers. He's always, you know, sent me stuff, shared loads of love in terms of you know feedback and help and being really honest with me. So so he's been really big. And then if I just go through the clubs, Aussie at, at Chelsea was was fantastic for me. Gailey, Massey, and Steve Salas at Millwall were good. And and like I say, Liam Manning at, at West Ham was. He was he was a massive influence on me going there, and also he really pushed for me last year to go on that trip to the Dallas I went to with the youth team. So that, those guys are people that I, I really uh, really value, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of their input in my career so far. 
How important do you think it is to have people like that in your life if you're as a coach and you're trying to want to progress? It's massive. It's massive. Honesty, honesty is a really important thing. So if you trust someone to be honest with you, they're going to give you clean feedback. That's something that Liam taught me and a, and a phrase he uses, clean feedback. Which you might not like it all the time. You might love it some of the time, but all of the time it's going to develop you and help you whether it makes you reflect in a negative way to say, I need to get better at that, or whether it highlights things that, that you're really good at that you didn't think you was that great at. Um, I, I think that's important. All of the people I've said have, have all been honest with me throughout, um, which you can only thank them for. And, and uh, in that same vein, how do you continue to develop yourself as a you know, Cat One Academy coach? Um... I think you have to stretch yourself. So what probably stretched me most last year was after Christmas, once a week, I'd go in, I would go in with the 23s. Um, that stretched me massively because it, it tested my bravery on if I, could, if I could relay a message and sell a message and sell an idea to players that were on an X amount of money that had played first-team football that might be the first team that are coming back from injury that want to be on loan or, or whatever. So I, I, I think probably the same philosophy I've got with players, so I need to stretch myself. I do try and go on study visits to places. I've been to Ajax a couple of times. That's an amazing place. Mickey Mickey will always have me wherever he is to, to go and watch him. Liam's invited me over to go to, to New York to see what's going on over there. So I just want to constantly expose myself to things I don't know. There's so many things that you don't know about the game quite frightening I think if you if you if you wrote things that you did know you could probably write on the back of a second class stamp if you wrote down the things you, that you don't know you'd be here all week and and so that in that same vein what would your advice be for a young aspiring grassroots coach who wants to develop themselves and get into academy football uh, first of all ask loads of questions even if you're here to take people ask loads of questions Try and attach yourself to people that have done it, have been there, worn the t-shirt if you like. Go and go 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 outside your comfort zone and go and go and research things that you might not be biased towards. So going back to the the four four two debate that we had earlier, go and research things and and help yourself understand things better um, so that you're not biased towards certain things. And like I say, if you can attach yourself to people that you trust, that can be honest with you, that help you develop, you will get better. I suppose it might be tricky though, I suppose if you're in a grassroots environment, you don't have that access to the academy uh, environment and those, those, those loads of those world-class coaches, what else could you do to try and you know, access that or you know, get your first step on the ladder or, you know, or try and see quality coaches coach? Yeah, I, I mean, we, we live in a world now so where the internet is king, so you can open your laptop and you can watch someone delivering something on the other side of the world. So I don't think there's there's a massive excuse. You want to watch the best, so I know you you do a lot of stuff online. If people want to see you you deliver, all they've got to do is get themselves onto YouTube and they can watch. They you know there's loads of websites. All my personal football coach dot com. Plug it. <laughs> there's your plug. <laughs> um, I, I I think if you know. If, if I receive a message in an inbox that says to me, hi, Harry, um, I've listened to this. 
can I come down and watch a session? I've never said no to anybody, ever. I don't, I don't think a lot of people do say no. I, I think people are quite interactive in terms of helping people. I think if you've got something to hide, it shows a weakness. So I'd encourage people to obviously get themselves online, research as much as possible, watch as much as possible. But nothing beats being there in the flesh because then you can ask questions that are are coming up right now and what you think it, what you think is relevant right now. Um, and yeah, get in touch with people via social medias and whatever and speak to them and just ask them if they can come in and, and watch a couple of sessions and that's how I started. I asked Mickey Bill if I could go and pick his phones up when I was 15. I'd run out of school, run down to, to a primary school hall where he used to deliver with a little book, write down his session, steal all his ideas and, and go home. That's how I started and he was open to sharing. So I think people should just, people should reach out and and I think people will be receptive to that. And then what about a, uh, any advice for a young player who's uh, aspiring to play at the highest level? Wow, what a great question that is. First of all, they, I think players need to listen more. They need to use their ears more. Something I've always said to players is good footballers have good, have good ears. Um, I think if, you, know, you, need, you need to listen to your coaches. Your coaches are employed to make you better. I think players do have the tendency to listen to the wrong people, especially when you go up in the age groups, as you know, Saul, you've got agents involved, you've got dad that, dad that you know, played and thinks he knows better than everybody else. I think listen to your coaches. Um, I think be brilliant at the basic things and extras are a massive thing that probably West Ham have introduced me to more than anyone else is. You only get three, four, maybe five times a week where you're playing football for that particular club in that particular shirt. But striking another 50 balls after training or practicing your penalties or doing some extra one-to-one stuff or going to people like yourself, they're the things that I think will separate you from the others come crunch time, whether that's a scholar, whether that's a pro, whether that's a first-team position, an international call-up, whatever. And what about advice to a parent who's got you know, a very talented young six, seven, eight or nine-year-old uh, in the house? Quite simple, really. Take them, to, take them to the club, drop them off, let the coach get on with it, pick them up, don't talk about football on the way back and let them be a kid and keep their feet on the ground. I think if you, if you get a parent that does that, the kid has got an unbelievable chance if they're talented. And finally, I know you're, you have uh, a re- well, relatively recently married uh, to a beautiful wife who also plays football. That's right. She's at, she plays at Palace, is that right? Yeah, she's a, yeah and she's a, she, play, she plays international football as well. It's yeah, difficult, that's right. Difficult well. being married to someone that's played in front of 40,000 people. <laughs> well, I, I enjoy watching your games of two-touch in the garden and seeing her uh, take you back to school sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's good. You know, the, the refreshing thing is, so I'll be honest, I never have to argue on Champions League night about what's on the telly, which is, is, is it. Well, I'm just, I'm to, it's just like a, just a football crazy house then. It's just football, football, football then, is it? Literally. Uh, she'll ask me how my session went. I'll ask her how her session went. When I can, I'll go and watch her games. Um, she, when she can, she's massively supportive of me and watches my game. So I've really landed on my feet. And uh, finally, just your, obviously, you're, 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 you've got a successful football business. I mean, you know, look, 
a lot of people, you know, I always wanted to aspire to work full time in the game. I was lucky I do now. You do. Tell us about your successful football business you, you have and you've, you've, you've built up over many years. Yeah, so it's called Advanced Player Development. Um, work with players from the age of four with the little ones introducing them to the game all the way up to 19 where we sort of give them a bit of a, I suppose you call it a second chance. If they've fallen out of, of academy football or never had the opportunity to be involved in it, we run a number of scholarship programmes. Um, where we have coaches that work full-time on the grass with the players. We have uh, links with colleges and schools where they help the players in terms of their education. And then we try, as best we can, to organise quite an elite games programme just to try and uh, get them looked at um, by clubs, just to get eyes on them, really. Um, and we've had quite a few go through, which is that's been really important in the success because I think the worst thing in the world you can do is sell someone a dream and not deliver. But our promise to the players is we will try and make you better on the pitch and off the pitch and we'll try and give you an opportunity on the pitch to prove what you can do. So when we go to these clubs, last year we had a boy, Eddie Allsop, brilliant person, first and foremost, fantastic player, never been into a pro club. Um, he's a first-year pro now at Charlton. He's evidence that if you if you come into something like us, not just us, because there's other brilliant organisations that work similar to us, but if you come into something like that and you get an opportunity and you take it with both hands, it can work. But we we do that with all age groups. So, so like I say, we work from the babies all the way up. Um, and we just try and improve their quality of coaching. We try not to conflict with their grassroots club. So we try and hold training nights away from that so that they can do both our games nights we do on our training nights so again it's not conflicting with their Sunday or Saturday football um, and it, it's yeah, it's just giving them an opportunity and, and so where are you based where's APD football based all over South East London and Kent really so we'll go from I'd say sort of New Cross um, sort of around my neck of the woods where I'm originally from around that way Lewisham down and all the way down to sort of Dartford in Kent so, um, yeah, we've, we've got centres plot, plotted up um, all over the place, really. And coaches, I'm really lucky. I've got a brilliant team of coaches uh, and I've got brilliant people that help run the day-to-day. So, um, yeah, we're, we're, trying to, we're, we're trying to cover those areas and trying to help as many kids as we can. And how do people find out about that? Uh, if they go to um, Advanced Player Development, uh, just type, tap it in on Google, um, go and have a look, and they can find out what we do. And just finally, it's just—I mean, it's interesting. How long did it take you to transition into into football as a full-time job, even though you're doing several different jobs? How long did you do that, and what were you doing before that as well? That's that's a that's that's a good question. I I was balancing working at Chelsea um, and working in a primary school delivering PE lessons. Um, probably, probably my best rounding as a coach I could get so 30 reception kids who are 4 and 5 years old that want they want to pick the equipment up and eat it before they want to do anything <laughs> and trying to help them understand that this is how you hold a tennis racket you hold it like a frying pan and you're making a pancake and this is what you do with a football and this is the part of your foot you use so I started doing that and I didn't I didn't really move full time into football probably till about four or five years ago so I've been coaching since I was 16 properly 
And if you wanted to call it call it full time, it, it probably took me eight or nine years to really get my foot in the door and being on the grass every day with players. So I would just urge people out there, if they haven't already, go and go and offer to work in a primary school for a day and go and offer to work with some of the kids that have got special needs because that is a real brilliant experience. Go and offer to work with some of the kids who are in reception and nursery in year one and year two. Then you will discover what your crowd control is like, how your voice works, how your words work, what your your body language looks like. You know how probably the key essentials to being a good coach and a good deliver, uh, deliver of a message. So I would encourage anyone to do that. I think that's a great point because obviously I, I mean I started my career there. And Chris Ramsey's talked about the same thing that that's where you really learn about interacting with children and personality how important that is and I think people can be a little bit you know I want to work in academy football but I want to do that tomorrow I've just got my, my level one I mean that's a real important part of the process isn't it going into that that you know that that level there and learning the in the trenches if you like yeah it's, it's massive I I thought I thought the right way to go was to smash the wall down and race through my badges so I went level one level two B license and I was thinking right I'm 18 I've got a B license this is brilliant get me into an academy I think Mickey was the one that said to me, stay cool, as his favourite fan, stay cool, go and do your apprenticeship, go and work with a team. Uh, I think it was Cray Wanderers under nines that I had. Then I went well in under tens. I was in a primary school in South East London where, oh, you've got to watch out for him because he's got a bit of a temper and you've got to watch out for this one because they can only do this. And It's an unbelievable grounding to be in a coach. Harry, thanks very much for your time. It's been fantastic. Appreciate it, mate. Cheers, Saul. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game. <laughs>